welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. His love for you is fierce and unending. Uh, words uh, from our King, King Jesus, and it matters that he's a king. Um, preparing for this uh, message today, I was uh, asking myself this question, why does it matter if we accept Jesus as a king? You know, you're going to hear it now, it's Christmas time, you know, we're going to sing about the newborn king. And why does that even matter? Why do I need to accept him as a king? I can accept him as a savior, right, because I have sin, and I, and I need to be saved from that because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, right? So I accept that, and I can accept him as my life. I can accept him as my righteousness because I need to be saved and have his righteousness be, be um be created as the righteousness of God. So I can accept that, accept him as a friend, but why does accepting him as a king matter to us? You know, it reminds me of um, a gospel story where there's Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate brings Jesus up into uh, a trial in front of all the Jewish leaders and people, and he also brings Barabbas and this is before Jesus is going to be crucified on the Passover. He brings him up and he says, listen, I can't see anything wrong with this Jesus guy. I don't know why you want to crucify him. He says he's the king of the Jews. What's the big deal? Just like, I always give you back one of your prisoners on Passover. So why don't I give you the option? How about this Barabbas guy who's a murderer? Barabbas who started a revolt and was trying to kill people. How about I give you him? rather than this Jesus character. But the people, the, the, the Jewish leaders that says, and I'm paraphrasing, the Jewish leaders said, we don't want this King Jesus. We don't want him to be a king over us. We want Barabbas. We want the murderer. Give us the murderer, please. Now, why Barabbas? Like, why do they want Barabbas? Quite honestly, guys, they don't want Barabbas. They don't care. Matter of fact, Barabbas is a threat to them because he's stirring up trouble with the Romans and they want to keep the peace. They want to keep the power that they have. It's not that they want Barabbas. It's the fact that they don't want Jesus. They don't want him to be the king. They don't like the authority that he speaks with. They don't like that he backs up his authority with power and miracles, that people's lives are completely changed, that dead men rise and people who can't see start seeing and people who can't walk begin to walk. They don't like Jesus' authority. They want him gone. Because as long as he is around, it means that they are obligated to submit to him because of his absolute power. See, just like the Jewish leaders at this time who love their autonomy and they love their independence, I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Do we accept Jesus as king? No, we don't want Barabbas. 
Or are there areas of your life where you're like, you know what, Jesus' leadership, Jesus' ownership, Jesus' authority in my life doesn't apply to this area. And see, the challenge isn't, you know, when I'm at church, right? Because when you're at church, Jesus is king. Good. It's easy to say that. When you're talking to other Christians, yeah, Jesus is king. That's easy. That's not a problem. The problem is, when do you consider the benefits of your own autonomy? The benefits of the things that the world gives when you follow with what they want you to do. When you consider the benefits of culture rather than the all-surpassing benefits of Jesus' authority and Jesus' kingship in your life. That's where it really matters. And it could come to us in all kinds of different forms. I want you to turn, to me with, right, turn with me right now to 2 Samuel 24. I'm looking for my water down there. It's up here. So turn with me to 2 Samuel 24. This is a big, big chapter. We're going to look at the whole thing. And here we're going to learn about David. Okay, David in 2 Samuel is the ideal example of a human king. And the author of 2 Samuel is setting up David in the eyes of the readers and for us to recognize that this is as good as it gets on human ability for a king. But there is someone greater coming. And the promises of a greater king is on the way. And he is only a forerunner. David is only a forerunner to God's choice of a true human king who was to come. You see, Jesus is a true human king that God set up that he wanted to employ his protection, God's protection over us, by which God wants to employ his rescue. When you're going through something and you need help, this Jesus was the vessel, was the one by which God is going to be involved in rescuing you. And then lastly, this is the one that, that God has appointed to lead his people. What I want to see today is that when we accept Jesus as king, that we're going to see three benefits to accepting it. And, it's, and these three things are going to bless you. I promise you, it's going to open your heart. It's going to help you to trust him. And we're going to find out that they outweigh all the benefits of autonomy, of our own independence, of our own self-will, of our own ability, and of the culture and the world. Let's pray together. Uh, so, so even in this moment right now, Jesus, I'm so humbled by the fact that this is um, not at all uh, a realm that I feel worthy of talking about because you are the king and you've made yourself known. But Lord, I pray that in this moment that it wouldn't be my words, but it'd be your words that you would highlight to us um, your kingship. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to read 2 Samuel 24. So, you could, so I'm going to read. You can follow with me uh, with your Bibles or on your devices, okay? So we're going to read 1 to 9. So again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times, as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's words prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. 
So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Now, don't get tripped over all these words I'm going to say, okay? It's just, it's just, it's just describing to you like to the extent that they did the census, okay? So they crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad to Je- onto Jazir. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and then they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites, and they went out to the Geb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, Right? And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel, and there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. Where are my valiant men in here? Yeah, go ahead. Put your hand up. Go ahead. Hey, oh, okay. 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and and the men of Judah were 500,000. David does the census, and he's trying to see how powerful am I. David wants to see how much have I achieved towards the end of my life. This is towards the end of David's reign. He's an old man. He's had lots of successes, military success, and he wants to see how powerful have I actually become. There are three questions that we need to answer here. Guys, there, and there's also three points. There's three points or three benefits to this. And this first benefit I'm going to talk about, it's a bigger one, okay? So we're going to spend a lot of time on this first one. I'm going to be laying building blocks to understanding the last two, which are going to go by really fast. Are you guys with me? You with me? Okay. But before we jump into it, we have to ask three questions, okay? So there's three really big questions. First question is, why did God incite David to do the sentence? Do you see that? In verse 1, it says God incited David to do the census. And you can can scratch your head about that. Like, is he, did God encourage him? Did God make him sin? Well, if you look at 1 Chronicles, now you don't have to turn there right now, but 1 Chronicles 21 also has this narrative. And in that narrative, the writer says, well, it was Satan. It was the accuser or the adversary who had done this. So what do we make of this, right? Right away, what we can make about this is, number one, that God is the one who is in control. No matter what those two references are, we can see God is in control. What else do we know about God? God is good. What else do we know about God? God is love, okay? So we know these things are true from Scripture, and so we see this here. So you might even say that it's possible. You could hypothesize, and a lot of commentators and scholars do this, they hypothesize, that this is a scenario like Job, where God allowed Satan uh, to have uh, sort of a dominion or have a force against Job. Or, or like how Satan was asking to sift Peter like wheat in the Gospels. And Jesus allowed it. He said, I'll, I'll pray for you. So, so here we see that God is at work in this scenario. And the Old Testament theology, so Jews in this time, don't have a problem like we do in this time. They don't have a problem. Like the people who read this originally, they don't have a problem with God being the author or the one who brings both good and calamity. But we read this and we're like, oh, what are we going to do with this? Don't freak out, okay? Because when we get into this with this lens that God is the one who's in control, 
I mean, promise you, this is going to bless you. This passage is going to open up for you, and it's going to give you deeper understanding, okay? Now, the next question is, actually, and I'll say this as well. It, this, since, since that is a big uh, can of words that just opened there, and we don't have time to jump into the whole thing, I would recommend a book to you, okay? I recommend a book to you that if you want to learn more about this and it's really going to open up your heart, it's Finding God in the Gray by Frank Friedman, okay? So I would highly recommend that you pursue that book. I'm sorry, I wish I had it here to show you. Again, we don't have time to jump into it in more detail, but that's a great book to look at. All right, second question. You guys still with me? Second big question, obviously, is why is a census bad? Like, why is it bad if David goes off and counts all these men? Well, the truth is that in Near Eastern tradition, whether you believed in a pagan god or you believed in Yahweh, Everybody knew that a census is kind of bad news. Why? Because if you go off and start counting the amount of men and power that you have, it could demonstrate a heart that is not faithful to whichever deity you're following. If a king does this, it shows that they believe more in their own strength and independence than they believe in the deity to support them. Now, even in Exodus 30, again, don't turn there. Even in Exodus 30, God says, hey, Guess what? You can do a census, but he even gives specific instructions about it, meaning that a census, when done with bad motives and bad timing, is sin. Not the census itself, but the motivation and the timing of it could also be wrong. And here it's very clear that now as David is in the end of his life, as I was saying before, he wants to see how powerful of a legacy am I leaving? When it's not true, it's the legacy that God gave him. Okay? Number three, question number three, you ready? This one is going to open up our first, mm, going to open up our first benefit. And the next one is, then why is God using David's sin to punish the people? I know you all thought that, right? Why is God using David sinned to punish the people. Well, let's go back and look at it. Verse 1, look with me. Verse 1, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so he incited David against them. What is God doing? God, don't be indirect. Just be direct. Just strike them down with lightning, please. You right? <laughs> Why is he going around? Why is he doing this? This is more confusing. It's not helpful, is it? And we'll notice again here that it's God's anger towards the people of Israel. And it says again, and unfortunately in Scripture, we don't know what they did to deserve this. It's not clear to us why this happened. It's not there. But we realize that it's again, right? The word again is there in verse 1. So they had done something multiple times by which it was, a, it was a, a, an adverse action to their relationship with God. So God had to do something about this. And so he's inciting David to now do this census. And through the census, we get this direction towards how God is going to get repayment or get atonement or clean up the mess that the sin has made. This is tough stuff for us to hear, right? Because we don't really understand the scope and the purpose of a king. That's why it can be hard to accept Jesus as king. 
because we don't get the scope and understanding of what a king is. We, I mean, we have King Charles. Let's not say anything about that, okay? We have King Charles, right? King Charles is a decorated official who links the British people to their history and tradition. But that is not at all the type of king that David is. And that's not at all the type of king that Jesus is. He doesn't have just a title. He's a king in every aspect of the word. In history, especially in agrarian society, societies where you have agriculture and there's, there's, no, um, uh, there's no infrastructure for getting your, your goods and services, a king owned land. So he owned the land. He owned a geographical area. Everything belonged to him. And the king would then appoint royal subjects. He'd appoint his friends, his inner circle, or family members to own portions of the land. So a little bit of land for Chuck, a little bit of land for Yvonne, a little bit of land for Isaac, okay? And he's got, everyone's got their land. And then the subjects, or the ordinary people, would work the land of those royal subjects, of those people who are in the inner circle. And what does that provide? Well, immediately, if you're working the land, it's it's, it's, the land is actually being used to develop produce, and that food and that can serve everybody who is part of that land, but also that subject is also getting food for themselves and work, but also protection, right? Because the Lord is responsible for them, and if the Lord is taking care of them, they're going to get food, and if the Lord is doing their job, then the king is also going to get food, and the king has their army, and the army protects the purposes and the interests of the entire land. The king owned them. Own is a tough word, isn't it? Especially when we talk about people and what that means for us. You see, this is a symbiotic relationship that promised that the cultivating and the care of the land and the protection of the king on the people. And so everyone is benefiting from this to the point that if you have a good king, a good king, a king who has great ingenuity, who is creative and loving and understanding, if you have a good king, then guess what? Everything's going to work. You have a good king, your loyal subjects are going to be taken care of, and the people will be taken care of, and your people aren't going to want to leave. Matter of fact, the royal subjects couldn't leave, right? Because if they left, then they couldn't work the land. So they were in a symbiotic relationship of dependence. The symbiotic relationship of authority and dependence. I'm starting to come home here. You guys following me? Authority and dependence. See, the king had ownership of the land, but not only that, he had ownership of the well-being of the people. This is a natural order of life that God created, and it's anchored in the Bible. It's in the Bible, it's, it's there. Right? Romans 5 says that by one person's obedience and righteousness, sorry, by one person's obedience, righteous came to many. But what by one person's disobedience, death came to many. So God has no problem laying the authority of one person for the care and the well-being of others. And this is a natural order that God created. Why? So that it would always point us back to our dependence and need for him. That we were created to be in dependent relationship with God. 
that he breathed his spirit into us, and that's how the dust came to life. That's how this body became animated. He is the source of life. And so we'd always be remembered, even by this, this simple idea of a king, this natural order that God has weaved, this, this, this cosmic order that God has weaved into our natural order of a king would allow us to see that example and say, oh my gosh, this is the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. Let me say something tough. Do I own my wife? Someone just got in trouble because they said, yep. Okay. Do I own my wife? Tough question. What's, what, what's in a name? Right? What's in a name? Okay, nothing against you if you didn't do this as, as a lady. Okay, but, but my wife has my name. She has my surname, Antoine. A-N-T-O-I-N-E. It rhymes really well and it works well for me. Okay? <laughs> I worked on it this morning. Don't worry about that. Okay? My wife has my last name. And my children have my last name. Do I own them? Well, I know the word is, is kind of a throwaway word in our culture. But when I see that my wife that I pursued, who did not have my name, but now has my name, I, I feel a sense of ownership. I feel a sense of responsibility to her. When I see my children have my name, oh, I feel a sense of ownership. I feel a sense of responsibility for them. I, I realize that that if I am well with the Lord, if I am receiving his love, then my, then my love is not part of the game. I'm receiving his love, then I can love my wife with the love that I've received from Christ. If I'm healed by Jesus, I'm not passing on past hurts to my children. I'm not loving my wife through the, through the, uh, the, the menial resources of, the, of, the, of my upbringing. But no, I'm loving her through the, the magnitude of resources of love and care that God has given me. Do I own them? Ah, tough term. But do I have a responsibility for their well-being? Absolutely. Guess what? Bible backs it up. Better, right? Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says, man who doesn't love his wife doesn't love his own body. Do I own my body? Come on, people. Come on, men. Listen. We... God has set up this natural order, not so that men can use their power to, 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 to destroy their women and, and break them into submissive beings, but he set up this natural order to show something in Scripture that we would understand something about who he is, this natural order so we would understand who he is and how he wants us to relate to him. So, yes, if I love my wife, I'm loving my own body. I'm taking care of myself. It's a symbiotic relationship. It's this great mystery of authority and dependence I've been invited into. And guess what? It's reflected in my relationship with the Lord. So I go to him and I say, I need you today. And he says, guess what? You are part of my body. Right? Okay. What verse is that? I got to get that verse. I'm getting too excited. Oh my gosh. Okay. What's that verse? Sorry, guys. We don't have the slides up here. All right. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Look, we who are humans know how to take care of our own bodies. When my body's thirsty, I give it water. When I'm hungry, I feed it. 
When I need to stop working because I'm too tired, I rest. We know how to take care of our own bodies. How, sorry, I'm getting too excited again. (laughs) How much more? How much more does Jesus take care of his body? This king, when we align with the natural order by which God um, set up this world, when we align ourselves with him, guess what? His kingship, his ownership over us is not just ownership for the sake of ownership, but it's ownership for the sake of well-being. When we align ourselves with him, because he's going to take care of your body. He's going to take care of his own body. He's going to take care of you. God's created the symbiotic relationship between authority and, depend- and, in- and the dependence that is weaved into all creation, that even this institution of a kingdom kingdom is part of it. Whereas David's census, which we're going to see, is going to bring judgment, Jesus' authority instead brings protection because he is the true king. Jesus is the absolute true king. David was an ideal example of a king. Jesus is the true king. So when we look at this passage, we could see what a real king is supposed to do. We could see that even within the natural order of things, if David does wrong, it harms the people. And when David does good, it blesses the people. You see in Scripture as well, in the Old, in the Old Testament, David is the ideal example of a king, and all the other kings really fail to have a relationship with God. So what happens? The nation perishes to the point that the last king gets his eyes gouged out, and they throw him in a prison in Babylon, and the whole nation gets taken out of the land. But that's not the type of king we have, not a simple human king. We have Jesus, right? Look at the symbiotic relationship. Jesus died, so we died with him, so we were free from sin and the slavery of sin. Jesus was raised to life, so we were raised to life with him. Jesus is at peace with God, so we are at peace with God as well. Jesus had the spirit of God, now we have the spirit of God. Jesus was a child of God, now we are the children of God. Look at what this king has done. Look what this natural order of authority and dependence brings. It brings life. It brings true satisfaction. And it also brings purpose. The other thing that we also get with Jesus as well, Philippians talks about this, is that as Jesus suffered, we also experience suffering. Philippians 1 talks about that, that we also, as he experienced suffering, suffering, we also experience it. This is the dynamic of this. Not that it would harm us necessarily, but that what it would do is that it would strengthen our resolve to trust him. That it would strengthen our resolve, like James 1 says, that as we persevere, we're going to get the crown of life. And as we continue to trust him through everything we experience, we realize that the world didn't hate us (laughs) because of us, but they hated him because of Jesus. And this is the beauty of what we've been called into. Is this the Christianity that you signed up for? Did you sign up for a program? Did you sign up for making friends? Did you sign up for great worship, which we do very well? Or did you sign up to be in complete union? Did you sign up to be part of his kingship, to be part of his kingdom? Let's keep going.
Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, okay? 10 15. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or, I'm going to pause there. Has anyone noticed there's a theme with the number three? Okay, let's keep going. Or, sh- or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Other, other translations say I'm in great anxiety. David experienced anxiety. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let not let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time. And there died at, of the people from the absolute north, which is Dan, all the way to the south, which is Beersheba, 70,000 men. We're seeing here this example that God could have punished the people on his own. He could have done it. He could have found atonement for the things that they did wrong on his own. But no, he set up a natural order of things by which a king is an example of this natural order that he set up, that authority and dependence, a symbiotic relationship is supposed to work and it gives us an idea of how we are to relate with God. So he sets all this up and he's using David now to make an atonement. Now we notice that number three, right? Not only is the number three repeated times, but God gives David how many types of punishments? Three. So this number three is really important because number three is the number of atonement in Hebrew. Jesus was convicted. He was crucified and he was raised in how many days? Three days. So we're seeing here that there's this pattern. And we're seeing that this is the way that God now wants to bring atonement to the things that have, done, that have been done wrong. He's trying to save them from the, from the pursuits of their behavior that are going to harm them. And so he's using David to do this. You know, there's this game, Dr. Dodgeball. Anybody ever played? I, I, I thought about bringing dodgeball up here and just making that dodgeball sound, a purr, purr, you know, when you hit it together, right? Because in Dr. Dodgeball, this is how it's set up if you've never played it, Ian, is this. You played it, you played it. So there's this big line right here. You have one team over here, right? And you have another team over here, and they have the balls, and they're going to throw the dodgeballs at each other, and you're trying to get, this team's trying to get as many people out on that side as they can. And in Dr. Dodgeball, the difference is, is that you have one individual who is on the opposite team, and they are going to be the person who can, if you get hit out, you get hit and you fall down, the doctor's going to come. They can pull you back to the farthest reach of the court. You can touch that, and then you can come back in. And you got opportunity to go again. And in this analogy, Jesus is the doctor. We, we're, we're in it. 
We're in it. We're in a battle. It's not a battle you chose. You were born into it. There's a world uh, that is against Jesus. There are demonic forces that are against the purposes of Jesus. And there's also the flesh, sin that's alive and well inside of us is against the purposes of Jesus. And we're taking all kinds of hits, right? We're in the game, we're taking all kinds of hits. And sometimes you get tired of taking the hits. Especially if you ever take a dodgeball to the face, that really hurts. And you feel the imprint afterwards. Anyway. And it's coming at you, boom, 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 boom. But Jesus, the doctor, has already won this battle, so he can't get hit. He's walking in there, he's going to take you out. And even if he gets hit, he doesn't get out because he can't. He's already won this game. So he comes, you've been knocked down by something in your life, you've been knocked down by a scenario, something didn't work well, someone treated you poorly, someone didn't do their job as the authority in your life, someone failed you as a husband or a wife, and so Jesus says, you're down, I'm in. I'm going to pull you out. Bang, come touch the wall. Let's go back, let's go back in the game because this game is not over. This battle is not over. It's not time to quit yet, people. It's not time to quit yet. It's not time to quit. So he's gonna come, he's gonna grab you, he's gonna pull you back. He's like, you're healed up, let's go, let's go. We're back in the game. Jesus, unlike David, because David's kingship, David's kingship brought judgment, but Jesus' kingship brings rescue. It's a demonstration of his ability to help us and to rescue us, that he's always going to be there. You see here in um, Hebrews 9, 22, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And, the, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in this context, there had to be death. There had to be a shedding of blood so that the people of Israel could not be further harmed by the things that they had done wrong. So David's kingship brought judgment and death. But instead, whose blood was shed for all time for each and every one of us? It was Jesus. Jesus' shedding of Jesus' death on the cross, the shedding of his blood means that there's forgiveness for us for all time, for all the things we've ever done wrong and anything we will ever do wrong. So no, we are never punished for our sin. There may be consequences to things we do wrong, but God is never punishing us. He's redeemed us in full. That's why he is obligated as a doctor to come back in and pull us back out and get us back in the game. He can always be there to rescue us. He is obligated now by his ownership of us, that we are part of his body, to give you rescue. I don't know today if you are somebody who is in this place and you're like, you know what? I'm in need of rescue. I need a king who is not all talk. I need a king who has the promise, who has the obligation, who has the desire, who has the will to rescue me. Jesus is that king today. And part of the natural order of things, since he is a good king, he will do good to you, and good will come to you if we trust and we rest um, our confidence in him. And we abandon and release our, our desire for autonomy, our desire for independence apart from his kingship. 
But let's go on to our last point. We'll look at um, verses 17. Did I say 17? 16, sorry. So we're going to look at verses 16 through to 17. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I've sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so we're going to keep on reading. So we'll go to 18 through 25. And Gad came to day, to, that day to David and said to him, Go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why is my lord, the king, come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord so that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord, the king, take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen uh, for the wood. All of this King Aruna gives to the king and the king said and Aruna said to the king, may the Lord accept you. You guys still with me? Yeah. We're still reading? Here's the next part. This part's really important. But the king said to Aruna, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David brought the, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, for the whole land that he owns, and the plague was averted from Israel. You know, God's design is crazy, right? Why one for everybody else? Why does that matter? Why, why, why would he set it up that way? Uh, here we see something very, very dynamic about how God is willing to work. Because David buys this threshing floor. The threshing floor is like a high precipice where um, people would take wheat and they would thresh it. Um, and they would it would have to be up high because they would have to throw up all the chaff so that the wind could blow the chaff away because the chaff was light. So he had to go to this high place. So David goes and he buys it. Well, guess what? This place that David buys, this um, threshing floor, this hill that he purchases, is the same hill that Solomon will build his temple on. We don't read that there, but you'll see it further on in Kings. This is the exact same hill that Solomon will build his temple on. Matter of fact, as we go further into Scripture, into the Psalms, they always are addressing this hill as Zion. What does Zion give you the picture of? What was Zion a picture of for the people? Heaven, a place where you could go and meet with God and be in the presence of God. And David says something that is a picture of Christ for us now as we read this, because he says, no, and get this, 
God didn't tell David to buy it. David did this out of his own heart. He, he knew that this is, this is, God is up to something. I'm going to buy this. So he goes and he buys it. He said, I will not sacrifice anything to God that wouldn't cost me anything. For us to be the temple of the living God, that the Spirit of God can reside in us, we can have, presence, have his presence living within us. So we can not only have that now, but also have that for all eternity, this place, there was a price that was paid. And the price was the life of Jesus. This is the kind of king that we have. See, David's kingship bought a hill. Jesus' kingship bought us heaven and eternity, and heaven and eternity living inside of you. An ideal example of a king, but the tr- an ideal example of a king for the purpose that we would look at that and say, no, he's not perfect. There must be something greater coming. And God's promise was true, that there was a greater true human king, and his name is Jesus, and his sacrifice means everything to us, that he would own us, that in his relationship of authority and dependence, we would inherit not only rescue, not only protection, not only love, but also eternity. This is the kind of king we serve. There's, there's some important details here that we've been, we've been looking at. And I, and I think there's a lot of things that can give us a ton of questions, and I'm trying to watch the time. But I want us to bring us back to something really quickly is that what Jesus did wasn't only for us, right? Because when David did that work and he bought that hill, the temple was for the people of Israel, not just for him, but for the people of Israel to be relieved of this disaster. That was how God wanted to relieve it from them. It was how God wanted to bring atonement for their sin, and that's how it happened. But even after that, the temple became a place where people could meet with the presence of God. So it had a greater purpose than just what God had originally stated. Not only that, but we look at the picture of the temple and we see how we are the temple of God and God's presence is living in us. So it has a greater, again, symbolic resonance in each and every one of us. See, what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us when he purchased us with his blood, he purchased us with his death, it wasn't just to end with us feeling good about it. It has a greater purpose because this king, because he's a healthy king, he's a good king, he has great ingenuity and great goodwill. He wants to bring health and life and deep satisfaction and reconciliation and rescue to the whole world through us. It has a greater purpose. Accepting Jesus as the true king is going to give you purpose. If you're here today and you're struggling with purpose, what am I doing? What am I doing with my job? What am I going to do it's after school? What am I going to do right now with my retirement? What am I going to do with my crazy children? What, 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 what am I doing? Have I made all the wrong choices? I'm lacking purpose. Instead of resting in your own autonomy, resting in your own independence, resting in the merits and the benefits of what the the world gives and culture gives, which you already know are dissatisfying because you experience the satisfaction. 
instead. Align yourself with his kingship. Decide today. I don't care if you chose Jesus when you were three years old at a vacation Bible school. Sometimes we need to stop and say, I have trying to be king of this area of my life, and I wanted you to be king over there at church. And so Monday through to Saturday, well, maybe Monday to Friday, because Saturday sometimes I read my Bible. Jesus, stay over there, but this area is mine. Yeah, you know, if you're lacking purpose, you want to align with God's natural order of things. His authority and dependence, his ownership of you is not a dirty word. It's for your benefit. And not only your benefit, but the benefit of others. That now as the temple of God, coming over here, guys, I haven't spent much time over here. <laughs> that as the temple of God, God's spirit resides in you and you go out into the world, the far reaches of the world, and the aroma of God is on you and his power is resting on you. And he has given you his wisdom because he's a child of God, you're a child of God. He is the spirit of God, you have the spirit of God. So you bring that wherever you go. Now the temple has expanded, hasn't it? The temple has now reached the corners of the earth and God's glory is spreading. But are we willing to accept his ownership of us to see that happen? Are we willing to accept that he's the king? Because he wants to do that in every area of your life. Even your job that stinks and you hate it. You align yourself with his kingship. He's going to give you purpose in that place. He's going to lead you. He's going to give you direction. He's going to show you how to be who you really are in that place, even if the circumstances are bad. And you bring the aroma of God and his glory there. And you have great purpose, even where you are. And guess what? Even your crummy job that you hate, Jesus loves even the crummy school you hate, Jesus loves. Even the family members that you hate, be honest with yourself, <laughs> Jesus loves them. Let's accept his kingship today. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you for um, this passage, which is just a revelation of the good king that you are, the true king that you are. Help us to receive these words today. A lot of words. Um, but more than just words. Uh, I pray that you confirm it in our hearts that we are yours, that we are safe with you, that you've protected us, that you, are, you, you can rescue us, that you have given us purpose. As is now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.